and want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, as you all know, and we have been walking our way through the first three chapters of Genesis in this fall season, trying to get our minds and hearts and souls around some of the foundational ideas um, in the earliest pages of the scriptures. Tonight's our last sermon in Genesis for now. I mean, we might return to Genesis at some other point, just saying. But it'll be our, our last sermon in this first section of Genesis tonight. And in the coming weeks, we will make our way to the book of Revelation for the final couple chapters of the Bible, kind of a bookends of the Bible sermon series. And um, as has been our custom, I'm going to read um, from the book of Genesis, and I will be pairing this reading from Genesis with some readings from the New Testament. I'm supposed to read one, but I'm in the mood to read more. And I have the microphone, and I can do that. Um, So there we go. Genesis chapter 3, would you listen carefully and closely to this God's word? Beginning in verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. From the New Testament, would you listen to these words from the book of Colossians? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. From the book of Hebrews. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. From 1 John. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, in this moment, we ask that you would do the thing that only you can do. Lord, more specifically for tonight, we ask that you would take these mysterious words that are in your word. Lord, the words that I have prepared, God, would you use them by the power of your spirit to illuminate dark places in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, would it stir up or the freshest hope in our Lord Jesus. We pray, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So in these first few chapters of Genesis, we see somewhat of a progression as it relates to the revelation of God. In the first chapter, we meet the Lord who is a speaking God. He speaks and the world comes into existence. What we learned last week is that this speaking God is at the same time a seeking God. That he seeks sinners in their sin and in their shame. And tonight, we learn that this speaking God, who is a seeking God, also so happens to be a preaching God. He announces, he declares, he heralds, he preaches. Best I can tell, and don't check the math on this, please, I think this is my 211th Grace Fellowship sermon. This is the Lord's first here in this text. And in this text, God himself announces a new reality. Because of sin, there's a new reality. That's a good way to think of this sermon that the Lord preaches. He announces a new reality. These are oracles, divine announcements of a new reality. The enemy, it's reality, the enemy will be destroyed. It's not a suggestion. He's not saying it might happen. He is preaching. He's saying, declaring, proclaiming the enemy will be destroyed. He's also declaring, announcing, proclaiming that for the woman and the man, there will be a lot of pain. But in this first announcement that the enemy will be destroyed, there's much reason to hope in the second part. The pain 
that you and I experience in our lives. The main thing I want you to hear tonight, I want to be as clear as I possibly can be. The main thing I want you to hear tonight, if you don't hear anything else I say, I want you to hear this. This is, in effect, what this sermon's about. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And in doing so, he clears the way. He clears the path for you and I to live redeemed lives. Christ destroys the works of evil, of darkness, of sin, and death. Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil. And in that hope, you and I are invited, if you will, to take up a new redeemed way of living. So to show you this truth, I want to do two things. First, I want to try to explain these divine oracles. I want to sort of tell you what God himself is preaching here what it means, it's mysterious, it's strange. I want to explain it to you. And then secondly, I want to then preach to you the hope of Jesus. So let's first look at this sermon that the Lord preaches. He preaches about a new reality. Look with me at verse 14. The first part of his sermon is an announcement to the serpent himself. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The serpent, who the rest of the scriptures in the book of Revelation will identify as the enemy the accuser, the liar, the deceiver, the roaring lion who, who prowls about seeking someone to devour, Satan himself, literally the Satan, the adversary. The Lord preaches, announces, declares, proclaims that this Satan will be cursed, will be humiliated, will be sunk low. If you heard me read it and it's mysterious to have to slink, slink around and slither around. In other words, a miserable existence will now be Satan's. Think about this for a second. The scriptures teach us that Satan cannot experience joy of any kind, ever. The enemy can only experience a sort of slithering, humiliated, slinking around, scared, fearful existence. Secondly, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The Lord God is announcing a new reality. This Satan will be humiliated and live a humiliated existence. And at least part of this is there will be a kind of wrestling struggle, hatred, we might say, opposition, hostility between his offspring, those who follow after him, and the offspring of the woman, 
human beings who will come after. There'll be a kind of cosmic struggle between good and evil, and that's almost not even the right way to say it, because the Bible will never paint this to be some kind of even thing, ever. Okay, the idea that good and evil kind of duke it out to see who can prevail, you know, that's, co- that's, a, that's a common idea in stories and in movies, and it's just completely out of keeping with the scriptures, okay? God is announcing things because he's in control of the situation here. But in the real live experience of human beings, there will be a war, a wrestling match. The New Testament talks about this. Now, it's not an even fight. There will be a wrestling The Apostle Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers and authorities and the principalities of this world. This is Satan's offspring. Enmity. I looked up different versions of the Bible to try to figure out what this word enmity means, and here's what I found out. It means enmity. Like every version of the Bible literally just says that same word. It's a strong word. Enmity is when two people become enemies. The rest of the scriptures will unfold this enmity. And listen to the second half of verse 15. In this struggle, he, meaning a offspring of the woman, a seed, a a one who is to come, will bruise the serpent's head, and the serpent himself will be able to bruise the woman's offsprings heal. The idea here is that Satan will do his, if I might say it so boldly, his damnedest to injure this offspring of the woman and you and me. But those injuries to the, to the heel of you and me, it's symbolic. It's, it's kind of down there. It's painful. It wounds us, but it doesn't kill us pale in comparison to the injury, the mortal blow that Satan himself would receive, which is a crushing of the head. It's the picture. Now this, this, what I've just told you, okay, that there will be one who is an offspring of the woman who will be able to one day crush the serpent's head. This, this one announcement, this part of the Lord's sermon becomes the fountain from which all the promises of the scriptures flow. This announcement has been called the first gospel, okay? The first announcement of good news into this very dark situation. This promise of one who is to come who will crush the serpent's head will become the very thread that weaves its way through every page of the scriptures and holds them all together in a kind of narrative storytelling unity. Every story, every poem, everything that the Bible's gonna say from this point forward will be a comment in a way on this idea. One is coming who's gonna stomp the serpent's head. And you can just imagine, imagine with me, imagine Adam and Eve, the man and woman in their sin and in their shame and realizing how badly and tragically they have fallen. And imagine them listening in on this announcement that the serpent's head will be crushed. And then imagine for the first time in human existence, a thing called hope 
would begin to bubble up in their hearts and in their souls. I will say more about that in a minute. The second part of the Lord's sermon is to the woman. Look at me, look with me at verse 16. To the woman, he said, he's going to now preach and proclaim a new reality that will be the woman's to live in. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I want you to remember that an original part of the calling for this man and for this woman is to be fruitful and to multiply. And what the Lord is announcing here, okay, it's actually not a curse. Okay, it's not a curse. The only two things that are cursed specifically in this text is the serpent and the ground. But it's an announcement of a new reality. In essence, this part of her calling in particular to be fruitful and to multiply, everything about that, everything about it, will now be painful and will now just not be the way it's supposed to be. Sin, it's the new reality, has destroyed that part fundamentally. And of course, childbearing and the pain associated with childbearing throughout the pages of the scriptures becomes kind of like a picture, an emblem of quintessential human pain. The Apostle Paul, when he's looking for a metaphor, talks about the pain that he feels, and all he knows to say is, I'm in the pain of childbearing. Because as many of you in this room know, it is, is it not the quintessential human pain? I don't know this, but some of you might. You're very quiet. I was up close and personal one time to the quintessential human pain of childbearing. I've told you this before. But on March 15, 2012, our first son, Henry, uh, was born and, and through a crazy series of events that I still cannot explain nor understand. Um, Mandy had to bear Henry, that's the right word, deliver Henry, <laughs> um, without an epidural, and she was not mentally prepared for that. Um, and it was, I don't know the way to say this then, human pain, physical pain. I've told you guys this before, but at one point, she said, Joel, I cannot do this all day. And then in my infinite wisdom, I said, you don't have to do this all day. You just have to do it one contraction at a time. <laughs> that was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> at one point later in the, in the morning, uh, Mandy grabbed my neck so tight like my neck skin so tight. But by that time in the morning, I had the wisdom to realize it wasn't the ideal time to talk about how uncomfortable I was. <laughs> of course, the physical pain actually pales in comparison to the emotional pain that comes from having children or desiring to have them. I know that there are many people in this room tonight who have felt that stink. It's a new reality. 
Verse 16, part B, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is, again, some of the most mysterious language in the scriptures. But the idea here is that somehow, and I don't know any other way to say this, I'm from Bessemer, Alabama, and this is the way I would have grown up saying it. Somehow the relational life for the woman will become fouled up, messed up. She will have sinful urges toward him somehow. And he will then, of course, respond back tragically, sinfully. Harshness, a desire to dominate. Not the way that it's supposed to be. It'll be the new reality. Now, that idea of sinful urges toward him and a response back with sin, of course, this explains everything about almost any relationship that you can imagine, doesn't it? In other words, this comes to bear acutely, perhaps in marriage, and many of you know this personally, but it also comes to bear in every other human relationship that you and I have. Our relationships are not what we wish they would be. A Christian counselor who's a really dear friend of mine I heard him say one time, part of adult life is simply grieving the fact that your relationships of any kind are just not what you wished they would be. It's a new reality. It's painful. The third part of the Lord's sermon is he preaches to the man He preaches of a new reality for the man, a painful thing. Let's look at verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. It's just interesting that God makes a big deal of trying to get him to bear some responsibility. Because you have listened because you have eaten of the tree, which by the way, I commanded you, do not eat. In other words, you've done this. You have chosen this. Verse 17, kind of the second part. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, and from out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Again, this is not a curse on the man, it's a curse on the ground. Remember, at least part of the original calling from the man and the woman were to be partners in having dominion over the earth, to go out there and subdue to beat back the forces of chaos and to make something glorious of the world that God had given them. And of course, the new reality for them in this situation is that will just not work. It will be marred and marked by sin. That calling to work will be ruined, 
fouled up, messed up somehow. Okay, this is the reason that work stresses you out of your mind. I mean, I sit down week after week after week with people from our church, both men and women, and a vast majority of that conversation, week after week after week, is about how our work is stressing us out of our mind. Okay, it's the reason, if I can kind of put it lightly, I mean, it's literally the reason. It's the scripture's account for when you're up against the deadline and you have to send that file that somehow the email uh, attachment just won't work. In fact, maybe the clearest sign we have for this curse is the fact that we have email. (laughs) Now, some of you are email people. I'm not going to look at any of you in the face. Some of you are email people. Come on. I didn't mean to say that. That was an accident. (laughs) A little more heavier. It's the reason why your work stresses you out of your mind. It's the reason why sometimes you just kind of linger there at work for hours and you're not sure why. You know you don't want to go home to that part of your calling. But you kind of hate this one too. And you're just sort of stuck. It's the reason why in the stress, it's the reason why... I don't know what happened, but half the bottle of tequila's gone. It's the reason why the stress of this can cause us to go searching to dark places. And the last part of the curse, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In other words, part of the curse here is that physical death, physical death will be a part of the pain of this new reality. And of course, all of us, without exception, have felt the sting and the pain of physical death. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, in this little section, we're told that from this, life will go on. The pain will go on but we're told here that God's provision will march forth alongside of it. The Lord covers their nakedness and their sin and their shame with his grace. He gives provision of mercy. And I cannot say this strongly enough. In every single human pain that's a result of this new reality, Grace proportionate is promised. So that's the Lord's sermon. Now I want to, for the second part here, which will go a little quicker, I want to make sure you're clear on the hope of Jesus. 
So there is a new reality that it will be my joy to preach to you because of Jesus. When you're listening to the Lord preaching the sermon, you might have had the instinct, I talked with the, about this with a friend in our church, to say something along the lines, well, could we have someone who is not just gonna preach about this provision, but provide it, enacted himself? And I will tell you as clearly as I can, announce to you that that person who will do that is Jesus Christ. So if we can just work this kind of back, the promise of one who is to come, who will crush the serpent's head, that promise finds its yes and amen fully in the person and work of Jesus. But it comes in two stages. There's the first advent and there's a second advent. I read about this in the New Testament readings. The reason that Jesus Christ appears, First John tells us, is to destroy the works of the devil. The book of Hebrews told us that Jesus appears. He takes on human flesh to taste our sadness as we just sung so that he could destroy the one who has the power of death. Oh, by the way, that's the devil. The book of Colossians says that when he goes to the cross, that our records of wrong, our records of wrong are eliminated. His grounds of accusation, in other words, are eliminated. And he embarrasses the rulers and the authorities. Have you ever noticed that in the gospel stories, the gospel stories tell of Jesus's ministry as something of a destruction of the devil. Have you ever noticed that? You might not have because we're modern people and that's lost on us. But it's the reason why Jesus shows up on the scene and demons start being cast out immediately. It's the reason why Jesus is, is healing because he's reversing curses. When he goes to the cross, He's talking about the fact that he goes, he's gonna to go to the cross in John chapter 12. And he says, by the way, when I am lifted up on the cross, the devil's gonna be sent down, destroyed. This is why Jesus is raised from the dead. This is why Paul can say, oh death, where is your sting? It's the reason why the book of Revelation tells us that Jesus comes up holding the keys to death in Hades. In other words, in Jesus' first advent, he begins the process of destroying the works of the devil. I want you to imagine something with me tonight. Whatever that thing is in your life, whatever that clearest sign that you have in your life, whether that's a relationship, whether that's a, whatever it is in your life, the clearest thing that you have that shows you about the curse of sin and death and darkness, I want you to imagine with me that that thing even now is being pressed and crushed underneath Jesus's feet. And one day in Jesus's second advent, the promise is that it'll one day be no more. In other words, the scriptures teach us of a second advent that is coming where the full and final result of this serpent head crushing thing will be done. And it's for that full and final stomp that you and I have to wait. A Christian life is a waiting life and waiting is hard. I told you about a night where I was putting my daughter Millie to bed. She was three years old and she was just kind of like, we we're talking about Jesus is gonna return to stomp out evil death and darkness forever. And then we gotta wait for that. And, and Millie said to me, she said, daddy, Jesus is taking a really long time. The best answer I had to say back to that was, I know, baby. For that we wait. 
but it's the most certain thing in all the world. Which, by the way, is what Christian hope is actually about. Christian hope is not kind of a wish or a desire. Like my son Henry said to me this weekend, Daddy, I hope we can go camping. What he's saying there is, I'd like to go camping. And if it works out in your schedule and mine, and if your follow-through is any good, maybe we'll get to do that. Who knows? (laughs) When we use the word hope, we're actually expressing something we're unsure of. Christian hope is expressing something we're dead sure of. And Christian hope is about, I don't know any other way to do this than to kind of act it out for you. Christian hope is about us knowing that off in the distance, there is a day coming when Jesus will return and he'll stomp out evil, sin, and death fully and finally. That, that's certainty. It's more certain than the fact that I'm standing here right now. And Christian hope is about knowing that reality and almost like grabbing it forward and trying to take hold of it in the present tense. And the scriptures teach us that day after day, moment by moment, hour by hour, that we pull that sort of certain hope into our present tense, that it begins to completely and utterly transform us from the inside out. It becomes alive. And it becomes an invitation for you and I as transformed people who are pulling this hope into the present tense. It becomes an invitation for you and I to live lives that are redeemed. It's hope that's alive. And every single time, and I know so many of you are so weary from the pulling, but every single time you've ever pulled and you've ever brought it forward to take hold of it, every single time, not one time like that will ever be wasted. And there's not a single moment in which our Lord will fail you for having taken hold of that hope. And if you'll continue to take hold of that hope day after day after day, the Bible promises you, you will not be disappointed. In other words, this, the message of Advent in Christian hope is not life's really hard. It is, life's really hard, and there is a living hope to be taken hold of, and now all kinds of new things are possible. So for example, to work it back, the relational pain that you and I feel, to take, take, the, take the desire and the domination that's so often a part of marriage becomes this vow to love and to cherish, to submit to and to love and give yourself for to take it outside of marriage, when men and women work as partners in Christ's kingdom, to take it outside of men and women's relationships, but in a Christian community in general, when we are sympathetic and tender-hearted to one another, when we decide to use our words to bless and to not curse, when we do those things, we're living a redeemed life because the devil has been destroyed and those moments are an opportunity for us to bring light to darkness. And because Jesus has stomped on the devil's head, it's actually possible. All kinds of things are possible. Let's take the vocational pain. Every single time that you are sent out from this place tomorrow and in the days to come, I mean, we have a place for you to pin where you get sent to every week in the foyer. There's little lights in this world. And every single time you don't worship your work, 
but you use your gifts to glorify God and to bless, uh, bless others. You're bringing light to darkness. And in these moments, the curse, if you will, becomes reversed redemptively. I'm just saying, as we take hold of the promises of Jesus, first told in these promises, in spite of the pains of all kinds that are going on in our life, we live a redeemed story. If Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil, and oh, by the way, he has, all kinds of things are possible. Let's pray. Or these things are obviously easier to talk about from a pulpit than to live in the reality of our life. But we ask by the power of your spirit that you would help us take hold of the hope that we have in Jesus in such a way that it transforms and clears a path for us to live redeemed lives. I pray that this hope would come alive in us, we pray. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, amen.